0: And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Huddn. This is the Ken Hudding show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well today is June the second, 153rd day of the year. Two hundred and twelve days remain till the year's over with. It's National Donut Day. If you can beat the police officers to the donut shop. Uh, American Indian Citizenship Day. In 1924, the uh, Indian Citizenship Act granted citizenship to all American Indians born in the U.S. Isabel Province Day. Republic Day in Italy. National Bubba Day, which is a big holiday in the South. National First Ladies Day. National I Love My Dentist Day. National Janice Day. National Leave Office Early Day, National Rocky Road Day, and Rocky Road ice cream is good. National Tisserie Chicken Day, it's the Platinum Jubilee Bank Holiday. Um, that was a celebration of uh, Queen Elizabeth's um, Platinum Jubilee, and Randall Fox Labor Day. Now, for those that are not familiar with Randall Fox, um, Sir Randall Fox's contribution to making the day a reality for the people of the Bahamas, and that's why it was named after him. As other nations started celebrating Labor Day, there was a need for somebody to advocate for it on behalf of the workers in the Bahamas. The day's marked as a public holiday, and all workers in the Bahamas get to take the day off. This allows them to spend the day uh, cavorting with their family and friends. Alrighty. Well, in 455, Rome was sacked. The Vandals entered Rome and plundered the city for two weeks. 1098, First Crusade. The first siege of Antioch ends as Crusader forces take the city. The second siege began five days later. 1608, London. Virginia gets a new charter, extending its borders from sea to sea. 1615, the first recollect missionaries arrive in Quebec City from Rouen, France. 1676, Franco-Dutch War. France uh, ensured the supremacy of the liberal fleet for the, for the remainder of the war with its victory at the Battle of Palermo. 1692, uh, Bridget Bishop is the first person to be tried for witchcraft in Salem. She was found guilty and hung. Not a teacher to curse somebody. 1763, Pontiac's Rebellion. What's now Mackinac City, Michigan? Chippewas capture Fort uh, Mackinac by diverting the garrison's attention with a game of lacrosse. And then they chased the ball into the fort and went on the rampage. 1774, the Intolerable Acts, the Quartering Act is enacted, allowing a governor in colonial America to house British soldiers in uninhabited houses, outhouses, barns, and other buildings if they were suitable quarters uh, that weren't provided. Which means the military didn't have to worry about spending money to build barracks or they just take over houses. 1780, anti-Catholic Gordon riots in London leave an estimated three to seven hundred people dead. 1793, French Revolution, Francois uh, Hanriot, leader of the Parisian National Guard, arrests 22 Garandolists selected by Jean-Paul Marat setting the stage for the reign of terror. 1805, Napoleonic Wars. Franco-Spanish fleet recaptures Diamond Rock an uninhabited island entrance to the bay leading to Fort de France from the British. 1835, P.D. Barnum and his circus start their first tour of the U.S. He's the man that said, There's one born every minute. He's talking about the voters that put people in Congress. 1848, the Slavic Congress in Prague begins. 1866, the Finnians defeat Canadian forces at Ridgeway and Fort Erie, but the, the raids end soon after that. 1896, Guglielmo Marconi applies for a patent for his wireless telegraph. 1909, Alfred Deacon becomes Prime Minister of Australia for the third time. 1910, Charles Rolls, a co-founder, Rolls Royce Limited, becomes the first man to make a non-stop double crossing of the English Channel by plane. 1919, anarchists simultaneously set off bombs in eight separate U.S. cities. 1924, President Coolidge signs the Indian Citizenship Act into law, it granted citizenship to all Native Americans born within the territorial limits of the U.S. 1941, World War II, German paratroops murdered Greek civilians in the village of Condamari and Lycanos. 1946, birth of the Italian Republic. In a referendum, Italians vote to turn Italy from monarchy into a republic. After the referendum, King Umberto II of Italy is exiled. 1953, the coronation of the Queen Elizabeth II at Westminster Abbey becomes the first British coronation and one of the first major international events to be televised. In 1955, USSR and Yugoslavia signed the Belgrade Declaration and normalized relations between the two countries discontinued since 1948. 1962, during the FIFA World Cup, police had to intervene multiple times in fights between Chilean and Italian players in one of the most violent games in football history. 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization is formed. 1966, Surveyor Program. Surveyor 1 lands in Oceana's uh, Procelium on the moon, becoming the first U.S. spacecraft to soft land on another world. 1967, Luis Monge is executed in Colorado's gas chamber in the last pre Furman execution in the U.S. 1967, protests in West Berlin against the arrival of the Iran are brutally suppressed, during which uh, Bino Onesorg is killed by a police officer, and his death results in the founding of the terrorist group movement on the 2nd of June. 1979, Pope John Paul II starts his first official visit to his native Poland, becoming the first Pope to visit a communist country. 1983, after an emergency landing, because of an in-flight fire, twenty-three passengers aboard Air Canada Flight 797 are killed when a flashover occurs as the plane's doors open. Because of this incident, numerous new safety regulations are put in place. 1990, the Ohio Valley Tornado outbreak spawned 66 confirmed tornadoes in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio, killing 12. 1997, in Denver, Timothy McVeigh is convicted on 15 counts of murder and conspiracy for his role in the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. In that event, 168 people are killed. He was executed four years later. 2003 Europe launches its first voyage to another planet that planet was Mars European Space Agency's Mars Express probe uh, launches from the Balkanur Space Center in Kazakhstan 2012 former Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak is sentenced to life imprisonment for his role in the killing of demonstrators during the 2011 Egyptian uh, Revolution 2014 Ghana officially becomes a 29th state of India Formed from 10 districts of northwest uh, Andhra Pradesh. And in 2022, following a request from Ankara, the United Nations officially changed the name of the Republic of Turkey and the organization for what was previously known as Turkey to Turkey Yay. Jesus. All right. We've been talking about a lot of off the wall things. And, uh, we're going to go from the space to Arizona. You know, there's been a lot of legends about ancient races. Just the other day, I read that uh, 12-foot-tall skeletons were found in Lovelock ca- uh caves that had 12 toes. Now, in the mounds that were excavated across the Midwest, they found skeletons 8 to 12 feet tall, six fingers, six toes. Most of them were in copper armor. Which makes you wonder about uh, previous races. Now, a lot of this country wasn't explored thoroughly until the 1800s. Um, no Coronado the Spanish conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado came to the Phoenix area from northern Mexico in 1540. He came north looking for treasure, the legendary seven cities of Chaboma. What he found was a dry desert with the ruined cities of the Hohokam lying in crumbled ruins. The Apaches had newly come into the area. Uh, they were all over eastern Arizona, Mexico, and West Texas, and controlled the eastern mountain areas of Arizona. In fact, the Apache raiding parties would descend into the lower desert areas inhabited by the Papago. And uh, they're now called uh, Tohono Odom. Coronado's party was using uh, Tohono Odom guides, but the Apaches still controlled the superstitious uh, superstition mountains. And the superstitions were like a natural fortress of rock, especially the western edge of the western end of that the mountain range. so it was an ideal citadel for them to hold up in. Now the Native Americans believed this area was a sacred place they called it the home of the thunder God and everybody knew in this mountainous area the thunder god had placed a great treasure if you remember when Montezuma was uh, executed by the Spanish uh, treasure trains were on the way to to pay a ransom and he sent word before he died that uh, to take them north and hide them and a lot of it was supposed to have come to the Arizona area now while some have explained the association with the Thunder Guard is coming from the occasional thunderstorms that occur in the superstitions and some of these storms cause flooding on the valley floor. Others have a different explanation entirely. A man named John Wilburton, mining engineer from Phoenix, wrote a booklet on the superstitions of the lost Dutchman mine, and he says the superstitions make a noisy rumbling sound about once a year because of earthquake tremors that are centered under Peter's Mesa. According to him, windows rattle right on the mountain's rumble for an hour or more, while nobody knows for sure, he believes that hot magma is stirring deep inside the earth and moving rocks along faults. The heat builds up pressure, causing stress, and then it subsides and the rumbling stops. He thinks there may be a hot spot beneath the superstitions, which has, a, frankly, a history of violent volcanic activity. Now, Coronado wanted to, the Tahoma Odom to guide him and his men in search of the treasure of the superstitions. He thought it was probably a rich vein of gold, but the Tohono O'odham guides refused. They said all who trespassed on the sacred land of the Thunder Guard would be punished. Well, in spite of that, Coronado and his men started exploring the mountains on their own. And legend says strange things happened. Men fell off cliffs, some broke bones, others just vanished completely. Nobody knows what happened to them. Well, in July, August, and September, the Arizona monsoon season can create spectacular and deadly storms with uh, flash floods and terrific lightning. I've seen one or two of them. Coronado and his men thought it was eerie the way the storm clouds would gather around the mountains, and they began calling the place Monte Superstition after witnessing a number of these violent thunderstorms. Other names are given to the mountains, but uh, the superstition name stuck. It's been called the superstitions for over 300 years. And for the next 300 years, the area of central Arizona was largely unexplored. Country north of Tucson and west of Santa Fe and Socorro in New Mexico was known as, on maps as Terra Incognita, the unknown land. Others called it Apacheria, land of the, the Apaches. While the Spanish controlled California, New Mexico, and the most southern parts of Arizona, that uh, that area in the middle was an uncolonized no man's land, and this included most of Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, plus uh, much of the mountainous western portion of New Mexico. Now it was the year 1832 when the first American explorer, Paulino Weaver, began to penetrate. Uh, the superstitions he was a famous mountain man guide prospector and early Arizona pioneer he first came to Arizona in 1825 when the region was still part of Mexico came back to the superstitions in 1853 that was the year Arizona went from being part of New Mexico to being a separate territory and during this historic trip into the mountains that uh, The great spire of rock in the middle of the mountains became known as Weaver's Needle. That's a thousand foot tall granite needle of rock. When Weaver first saw it, he was the scout and guide for a party chasing a group of Apaches who were accused of stealing horses. And this towering needle of rock would feature prominently in many of the stories of the superstition of the famous lost Dutchman mine called Weaver's Needle normally, but some maps call it Sombrero Butte. And it appeared on military maps as early as 1853. And it's one of the oldest Anglo-American named landmarks in the Southwest. Now, a lot of research has gone into trying to find some of the lost wealth, supposedly hidden in the, the superstitions, and a man named John Mitchell wrote a uh, book in 1933 called Lost Minds of the Great Southwest. And he had the opportunity to interview somebody who was actually taking part in uh, mining one of the most famous lost mines in the southwest, the Los Peralta Mine. He met Jose Belostrero de Madrid in 1910 in Mexico. And according to the story he told Mitchell, Don Miguel Peralta was a wealthy Sonoran cattle rancher in the mid-1800s. In the 1840s, he and his father worked some mining claims around Prescott, Arizona. When these petered out, he went into the superstitions where he found a rich gold mine and started working it. According to what uh, Ballesteros de Madrid told uh, Mitchell, the main camp for processing the ore was on a bend in the Rio Salado known as a Mormon Flat, the area now covered by the waters of Canyon Lake. And the ore itself came from an 18-inch vein uh, some little distance away around which the miners built a tunnel and a shaft. According to what Mitchell was told, the ore from that vein averaged several thousand dollars a ton, which is unbelievably uh, wealthy. Well, Don Miguel, according to the story, went back to the mine every year with his sons. And, of course, suitable number of retainers. And because the surrounding area contained a lot of high-grade gold concentrate, they made several other mining shafts besides the main one. And Don Miguel was always able to remember exactly where the mine was located by a landmark, an unusual peak that looked to him like the pointed top of a sombrero, which sounds very much like uh, sombrero butte. It was believed Don Miguel had taken millions of pesos worth of pure gold concentrate from the mining shafts of what he called the Sombrero Mine. Well, during the period of his mining and the superstitions, Mexico signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which gave the land north of the Gila River to the U.S., and this included the superstitions in the Phoenix area. So the the Peralta Sombrero Mine was now a part of the U.S., Well, in 1848, Don Miguel decided he'd make one last trip to the mine, left his sons behind to manage the ranch in Sonora. On his final expedition, according to Bellisteros de Madrid, he took an army of 400 men and as many mules and burros as they could to carry the gold. He told people he planned to bring back millions of pesos of gold. For many months, in 1847 and 48, the Peraltum uh, expedition worked the Sombrero Mine, refined a great deal of gold that was apparently in the form of nuggets and gold dust. According to legend, this mine had a large vein of gold that was practically inexhaustible. It was believed that hundreds of years earlier, it was probably worked by the Hohokam, but the Apaches had come in and now controlled that area. They had actually taken control of the turquoise mines near Tombstone from the Tahono O'odham. Well, the Apaches were well aware of the Peralta um, expedition. And according to the story, Cochise and Mangus, Colorado, two of the main Apache leaders, joined forces and got together a large contingent of warriors with the intent of attacking the miners. Don Miguel learned about the plan, stopped operating the mine, they covered the shaft as best they could, made preparations to leave. He knew the Apaches knew about the mine, but they wanted to keep it hidden from other prospectors in case they were ever able to come back. And according to the story, Don Miguel drew a map of the mine's location and carved out hieroglyphics on some rocks as a key to the mine. Well, having hidden the mine and made preparations for a return, if such was possible. Don Miguel withdrew his miners and equipment to a mesa high up in the superstitions. Here he planned to load the burrows and the mews with all the gold concentrate they could carry. And the plan was during the night they'd steal away from the three thousand foot mesa and make it back to the larger camp commanded by Jose Basteros, which was on the river far below and to the west. And from there the the group, which was, as I said, 400, would head back to the ranch in Sonora. Well, the Apaches were watching the miners from high up in the superstitions and put their warriors along the canyon and cliffs of the escape route. The main group of miners was uh, camped at the uh, processing center in the Rio Salado, but the goal was with a smaller group high up in the mesa. So as Peralta and his men tried to move from the mine through the narrow rock canyons of superstition, there was suddenly ambushed by arrows raining down from the rocks above. Well, the pack animals stampeded, frightened the horses of Don Miguel's guards. For over an hour, this attack continued. With Don Miguel's men firing pistols at the Apaches up on the cliffs and The pack animals, a lot of them wounded with arrows, dashed headlong up and down ravines. Well, in the end, the Apaches killed Don Miguel and all the miners except for three who managed to hide in the underbrush. Well, these three men eventually made it back to Ballesteros at the river camp and reported the massacre. And Ballesteros thought it would be too dangerous to go back to try to recover the gold and decided to abandon the mine entirely until they could be worked more safely. So he and his force headed uh, south for the Peralta Ranch on the Sonora Coast. You know, um uh, after that, joined the pirates who were working around the isthmus of Panama, whaling miners and ships going for the gold fields of California and became a rich rancher which was uh, his situation when he met with Mitchell later in his life. Well, the peanut gallery was tuning up, so I took a moment for them to calm down. Well, several years after the massacre of Don Miguel and his uh, miners, squad from the U.S. Army came across the scene of the massacre and the superstitions and gathered up what was left of the bodies and gave them a barrel in a large common grave. According to reports, Don Miguel's body was never found. The journal records uh, a lot of detail, but it doesn't indicate whether the Army ever found any of the gold concentrate. But the legend of a lost gold mine in the superstition was born. Stories spread all over Sonora and Southern Arizona. The lure of millions of dollars in gold nuggets plus a workable vein of pure gold was to stimulate many a treasure hunter over the next 200 years. I mean, quite frankly, finding this ancient mine it instantly transforms one impoverished to life for better or for worse. Unfortunately, and ultimately, the Sambiro Mine will become the most famous lost gold mine of all time. Later became known as the Lost Dutchman Mine. Well, it's interesting to note. Sometime around 1850, after the end of the Mexican American War, two army veterans came to the superstitions to look for the Peralta goal. Sean O'Connor and Aloysius Hurley were prospecting near superstitions when they found the skeleton of a burr and part of a disintegrated pack saddle. And on that pack saddle was a saddlebag that contained some of the gold concentrate from the Peralta mine. While camping in the mountains and searching diligently, they found the decayed remains of several other mules. In each instant, they found a dusty saddlebag filled with gold, but they couldn't find the mine itself. You now these two fortune hunters eventually made it to San Francisco and sold what they found to the Mint. Gold at that time was worth about $13 an ounce, and they got a total of $37,000 what they found, which was a huge sum for the time. They became rich by finding some of the Peralta gold, and they were sure there was more to find. Well, the two returned to the Superstition Mountains and stayed for a number of years. And they continually found an occasional skeleton in a decaying saddlebag filled with gold. And though they tried their best to keep what they were doing secret, the information leaked out. Not only did they have to deal with the rugged terrain of the mountains, they had to meet up with uh, and deal with robbers and riffraff, determined to follow them and kill them for the gold. Well, they didn't find any more gold according to what they said and realized their lives were in danger, so they moved to Idaho where they lived in comfort and told many a story about the superstition mountains over drinks at the local saloon. By 1860, the legend of the Lost Peralta Mine had gone from a campfire legend to a proven fact. It did exist, but the question is, where was it? Some argued the mine was located deep in the superstitious mountain, Superstition Mountains, and others believe it was in the Goldfield Hill area around the west side of the Superstitions. Others claimed it was in Yavapai County near Bumblebee, remote mining town of Crown King. is a steep canyon beyond Bumblebee, and it's probably this site that was being referenced in these particular claims, but uh, it's probably not the Peralta Mine. Well, the first big thing to happen in Arizona after it became a territory was five years later when the first Arizona gold rush occurred in 1858. It was in that year that rich placer deposits were discovered near Gila City in Yuma County. These placer deposits are later known as the, the dome placers and Gila City became Arizona's first true boom town. The town lasted only a few years and was destroyed in a flood in 1862. At that tide had over 1,200 residents, and probably the largest town in Arizona. But to show you how things can change today, nothing remains of like Gila City. It's a true ghost town. When well, in 1865, a young army doctor named Abraham Thorne got his first appointment to the newly established Fort McDowell, which was near Phoenix. And his responsibility just provided to provide the settlers with medical aid. Military was needed in this area because of continual harassment from the, the hostile Indians, and in Fort McDowell gave sanctuary to those peaceful Indians who. Had had enough of the constant fighting. So these Indians lived in a nearby area and provided with some means for survival by the military. Well, originally from Illinois, the young doctor was completely fascinated by everything he saw. Once he'd seen the immediate medical needs of the settlers and the soldiers, he decided to use his spare time to give what medical help he could to the peaceful Indians living nearby. Determined to help in any way he could, he began to teach himself their language and he slowly won their trust. Both the Apaches and the Tohono O'odham were amazed by his abilities and his quick mastery of their different languages. They grew to like him and respected him, and actually, they called him their brother. One day, the famous Apache chief, Cochise, came in to meet Thorne. Cochise's youngest bride was experiencing a difficult pregnancy, was then going to give birth. So he asked the, the doctor to, to come and see to the needs of his wife. Well, Dr. Thorne helped Cochise's young wife give birth, and the chief was very grateful. Shortly after that, Dr. Thorne got orders to be transferred to New Mexico. Learning this, Cochise and Geronimo summoned Thorne to come to their camp where the doctor was told that because he helped their people, they wanted to give him a gift. He'd have to wait for a day and a night and then they'd take him, blindfolded, to a place where there was much gold and he could take as much as he could carry as payment for his services. You know, he'd heard about the Lost Peralta Gold Mine and trusting the Apache chiefs to protect him, he agreed to their gift. You know, Dr. Thorne was blindfolded and Taken over a long and circuitous route, apparently into the Superstitious uh, Mountains. When the group finally stopped, the doctor's blindfold was taken off. He looked down and saw they were in a narrow canyon. The Indians waved him to a large pile of rocks directly in front of him. Those rocks were gold-filled, gold-bearing filled ore of a very high grade. He was told he could fill his saddlebags with the ore. Well, Thorne was then blindfolded again for the trip out, so he was never certain what the Indians had taken him. One point on the return trip, they took off his blindfold to allow him the opportunity to have a drink of water, and he saw he was on a much larger canyon. And he looked into the distance, he saw an immense spire of rock he recognized as Weaver's needle, or sombrero butte, as others called it. Well, he went to San Francisco to visit family before going to his new post in New Mexico. And there he sold the gold the gold uh, that the Apaches had let him take to the mint for an undisclosed sum of money. Mount paid off a loan his father owed on a business venture and gave his two brothers' sons funds to uh, build substantial homes. Dr. Thorne eventually retired. Quite a wealthy man, and part of his wealth had come from the lost gold mine of the Superstitions. Well, tales of the gold and the Superstitions sparked the so-called Miner Expedition of May of 1871, undertaken as a consequence of stories told by a man named Miner, in fact, as a guide. Equinoe, while prospecting into superstitions, one of his men with him panned out 17 ounces of gold from a single shovel full of earth. And he said he could lead the party back to that place. Well, the miner expedition numbered 267 men who had assembled at Prescott and divided into five companies. Though they diligently searched, they failed to find any gold diggings and minor stories believed to be false this was the largest expedition ever formed in Arizona to search for the for gold but ultimately came to nothing ironically the expedition passed over wealthy areas of gold such as the uh, old field of the mines in the area including what was probably the Peralta mine well this expedition gave name to the small sharp peak located on the south side of the superstitions and to the north of barks ranch known as miners needle Miner depended on spotting a lone sharp peak to identify the placer ground. Weaver's needle is much higher up in the superstitions. Well, so the question becomes how did the Peralta mine become this, the Lost Dutchman mine? Well, the old Dutchman, who was actually a German named Jacob Walsh, and his mine has become one of the most famous lost mine stories in the world. The real name of the Dutchman has long been disputed, and he's variously been called Walls and Waltz and Walzer. And according to the early superstition uh, historian Barney Bernard, his real last name was Walzer. Other authors call him different things. He was a large man, over six feet tall, physically imposing, had been educated as a mining engineer. Heard about the California gold rush, eighteen forty nine and came to the US with dreams of striking it rich. We arrived in California in eighteen fifty. His name appears on several California census records and he prospected, worked as a miner in California for eleven years. July 19, sixty one, in Los Angeles County Courthouse, Jacob Walsh became a naturalized citizen of the U.S. worked as a miner on the San Gabriel River for a man named Reuben Blackney, or Blakeney. That was probably where he met Elisha Revis, who was later to become known as the Hermit of Superstition Mountain. Now, Revis was something of a wild mountain man. He became famous around Phoenix in the late 1800s as a hermit who lived around the Superstition Mountains. And he may have been the source of uh, Wallace's early interest in the superstitions and maybe planted a thought of a lost gold mine in the Dutchman's mine eighteen forty nine gold rush sparked an army of forty ers as they were called to invade California, looking for the mother lode. early prospectors of load was originally a stream of water, but because a lot of the early gold was found in riverbeds, the term came to mean a vein of metal ore, and a particularly rich vein of ore was the mother lode. Well Waltslow didn't find his mother lode in California in the eighteen fifties and After becoming an American citizen, he moved to Arizona as a prospector. Prescott was the main center of activity in those days, and there's a recorded mining claim of Watts that was filed in the Walker mining district near the town. Like those of so many others who sought uh, the elusive dream of gold, his claim brought little reward. Gold and other precious metals found around Prescott and Crown King, but not by the Dutchman. When 1863 abandoned his claim and worked as an ordinary miner at one of the most famous gold mines in Arizona, the Vulture Mine, located near Wickenburg. While employed at the mine, he saw others' dreams of striking it rich come to fruition. Millions of dollars in gold ore was extracted for the benefit of the owners. While the Vulture Mine was very rich and became famous for the practice of workers high or hiding ore in their lunch pails in the cuffs of their trousers or in their pockets, this term for stealing from the mine apparently originated at the Vulture Mine, and Walsh, along with other miners, was accused of being a high grader, essentially stealing from the mine by keeping choice nuggets for themselves. They were be sold in Wickenburg, or Prescott, or Phoenix, or someplace else. With little proof, charges were dropped, and Walsh and other miners were told to get out of Wickenburg, Waltz had fallen in love with a beautiful young Apache woman named Kinty, and they moved to the Phoenix Mesa area, 13 miles from the Superstition Mountains. In 1864, while living in Mesa, Waltz met another German prospector named Jacob Weiser. Two men became friends and often would go into the mountains prospecting for gold. One occasion, they were prospecting in the mountains near Nogales, Mexico, and heard about a fiesta that was taking place in a neighboring town of Arispa. Intrigued with the bustle and festivities of the festival, the the two men went uh, for a drink at the local saloon. They watched a card game in process, and one of the players was the son of Don Miguel Peralta. Well, the two men noticed the card dealer was cheating and informed young Miguel Peralta and Miguel, angry with the card game, uh, uh, and the cheating accused the dealer who denied everything. The argument escalated, and Peralta and the dealer drew their revolvers around firing at each other. In true Old West fashion, the entire card table drew their guns and began shooting, and so did Waltz and Weiser. The gunfight left the car dealer dead, and Miguel shot in the chest, and Weiser wounded with a bullet in his arm. Waltz escaped unharmed. Waltz and Weiser immediately found medical help for Miguel and saved his life. In order to repay the two men, uh, Miguel invited him to the Peralta, Hacienda and Sonora and, during their visit, told him about his father's sombrero mine, which had now become a part of the U.S. And then he offered them a partnership. He'd show them where the mine was located and they'd split what they found. As Wal- Americans, Waltz and Weiser could lay claim to it, and all three of them would share in the profits. Well, the party was outfitted, and they traveled north through Tucson to the superstitions, using his father's map and the signs carved on the rocks. Peralta, wiser, and their companions were able to find the mine. They set up camp and began to work the the vein. They said the gold ore they extracted earned them $30,000. Well, young Don Miguel Peralta and his companions returned to Mexico uh, with their share of the gold. Walsh and Wiser bought houses in Florence with their newfound wealth, and it wasn't long before they returned to the superstitions to get more gold from the mine. They continued to work the mine for a number of months, when they were returning to town for supplies every once in a while. In 1881, Walsh returned to town, told everybody in Florence that Wiser had been killed by Apaches. According to the story told by Waltz, he came back to the mine with supplies and saw the Wiser's dead body pierced by a dozen arrows. So he buried his partner and returned to Florence, afraid of another Apache attack. Well, the Apaches were watching him and followed him back to town. When they saw he was living with Kenty, who was an Apache herself, they were convinced that she had told him the location of the mine. Planning revenge on Kentie, they raided Waltz's house in the early morning and kidnapped the woman. Now, Waltz and a group of neighbors followed in pursuit as the Apaches fled on horseback toward the superstitions. Waltz and his companions caught up with the Apaches, began to fire at them, and during the fight, the Indians released Kentie. Waltz um, jumped off his horse, rushed to the fallen Kentie, and She'd been stabbed in the back and had her tongue cut out. She died in Waltz's arms. Now, Wallace left Florence and moved to Phoenix, where he befriended a number of people. Well, there's no question the Lost Peralta exists. And the Lost Peralta was actually the Lost Dutchman mine. Well, by the end of 1881, Walsh's world had been destroyed. His wife was dead. His partner was dead. He'd moved to Phoenix. Went back to the superstitions every once in a while after moving to Phoenix. From time to time, he'd disappear for a number of weeks and come back with large quantities of gold, or he'd take his order to the Wells Fargo office and and ship it to the U.S. Mint in San Francisco, and eventually he'd get thousands of dollars in return. When the money would come into Wells Fargo, the old Dutchman would spend some of them in the local saloon and become roaring drunk. And he'd brag about having, uh, saying there was enough ore at the mine he knew about to pave every street in Phoenix. You know, as you might guess, the old man became a figure of speculation and fascination in Phoenix. Attempting to discover the source of his goals, some people tried to be his friends, and others took the spying on him, following wherever he went. As you might guess, Walsh was suspicious of everybody and remained aloof. He did participate in shooting contests, though. He believed, apparently, his sharpshooting skills would discourage those who might want to kidnap him or try to follow him to the mine. According to one famous story, Waltz made a trip to the mine in 1882 and took two borough loads of ore to Tucson and sold it for $1,600. Three famous locals, Colonel Poston, George McClarity, and Charlie Brown, were witnesses to the transaction and asked the old man some questions. They figured out that he probably didn't have the mine properly staked and recorded, and they attempted to follow him to the mine. Walsh, though, apparently had good reason to be paranoid and knew he was being followed. Three men caught up with him to Little's Ranch on Queen Creek, but after that he eluded them in the backcountry of the Superstitions. Probably went to the north side in the Goldfield area. When the three men got back to Tucson, they told the tale over and over to the point it became a familiar antidote in the saloons. Well, Walsh continued to visit the mine occasionally, but by now he was a very old man. February of 1891, a disastrous flood struck Phoenix, completely devastating it. His house was situated near the north bank of the Salt River and was suddenly caught in the water. He was forced to climb a tall cottonwood tree that stood near his home. But he was 83 years old. In spite of that, he was determined to survive, so he tied himself to the tree, knowing that uh, if he didn't, a lack of sleep might cause him to lose his grip and he'd fall into the water. For two days he lay tied to the tree, exhausted till he was rescued and taken to the home of Mrs. Julia Thomas. Miss Thomas was a black woman who owned a boarding house and a confectionery store and was one of Waltz's friends. The old Dutchman had contracted pneumonia from exposure and managed to live with the Thomases uh, for several months, hovering on the edge of death. Eventually died at her boarding house on October twenty fifth, eighteen ninety one. Well, grateful to the woman for her hospitality on his deathbed, he told her the location of his mine. A short time later, with no explanation to anybody, Thomas sold her store, and with a 17-year-old boarder named Reinhardt Petrasch set out for the Superstition Mountains. After some months of searching, she appealed to Reinhardt's father and brother, her experienced prospectors, to join him. The search continued for another year before it was abandoned at the end of 1892. She apparently went back to her business of running a boarding house ironically Julia Thomas and Patricia's have probably walked over the rich gold deposited gold field on their way back to Phoenix without discovering them and this group like many others passed by the very gold mine they were searching for when they went high into the superstition to the vicinity of weaver's needle gold mines on the northern edge of the superstitions were claimed and filed when the the rich black queen was discovered in November of 1892 and the rich uh, mammoth mine was discovered in 1893 both of these mines produced large amounts of gold, with the mammoth mine producing more than $3 million worth of gold bullion in four years. For the time, that was a huge amount. Well, many Arizona pioneer historians believe Julia Thomas gave an interview to Pierpoint Point Bicknell, freelance lighter, and lost mine hunter shortly after her return from the superstitions in September of 1892, and he probably paid her a token fee for the story. Well, Bick no more than anybody is responsible for the legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine. He was the earliest writer to associate Weaver's Needle, the Peraltas, and Jacob Walsh with the mine in his often-repeated newspaper articles. His first major article on the Lost Dutchman Mine appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle in January of 1895. It revealed several details as to the location of the mine. That story eventually was repeated all over the world. And Europeans became just as familiar with the Lost Dutchman mine as Americans were. Well, Bicknell, of course, used a variety of names for Weevil's and Needle, confusing early tes- uh, treasure hunters. He called it uh, Needle Rock, Sombrero Peak, and El Sombrero on different articles he wrote about the Dutchman's Lost Mine. Many years later, Julia Thomas revealed to Jim Bark, a prominent Arizona rancher, the information Jacob Waltz had told her. She said, Waltz well, told her the mouth of the mine could be found on a spot upon which the shadow of the tip of Weevil's needle. rests at exactly four o'clock in the afternoon. However, Julia told Bark the sun the direction seemed simple enough till you realize the sun's shadow moves every single day throughout the year. But we followed that shadow and carefully searched the surrounding area. The only thing we found was a trench dug on a claim near Goldfield, but never a mine. She said, I did believe him. He sounded so real. He said the mine edge of rose quartz with an additional few inches of uh, crystal hematite one-third of those few inches was gold and the rose quartz was generally sprinkled with pinhead sized lumps of gold he told me it was a king's treasure waiting for somebody to discover you well know, she had to laugh at herself she'd given up her store believing the old man's story and I think now he made it all up because he couldn't pay me at the end but he did have gold we all knew he had gold and he lived on it for years Well, one possible solution to the mystery of the whereabouts of the Lost Dutchman mine is the rich gold dike in the area of Goldfield. 1890, a mining prospector from Denver named Charles Hall came to the mines around Prescott to work. He decided that while he was in Arizona, he'd look around for other mining possibilities and check out the superstitions. Particularly interested in Goldfield Hill on the western edge of the superstitions, not far from the site of the Peralta Massacre. Examining an attack of rock on Goldfield, which had small specks of gold, in it, and he began to suspect Peralta had in fact mined that area and taken the ore elsewhere for processing. And if he was right, that would mean the gold mine was not in the superstitions as, as such, but along the northwest side, just beneath the great walls of rock. In fact, it seems that previous treasure hunters had been misled by the fact that the massacre occurred in the mountains, and the remnants of the pack animals were found in ravines deep inside them. The stony walls of the mountain. Well, one possible explanation for this is the fact that Peralta removed his men from the mine and they were killed while in transit from the camp on the Rio Salado. Well, Hall bought the mining claims to Goldfield Hill from some Mormon owners who apparently didn't realize he might own the rights to the lost Peralta Dutchman mine and put together his own mining operation. He called it the Mammoth Mine. He decided to sink his first shaft directly down in the center of the hill. What he found was high-grade gold concentrate. and During the next few years, he took out millions of dollars of gold from his mine. now appeared this man had finally found the elusive gold of Don Miguel Peralta and Jacob Walls. All felt he'd solved the mystery of the location of the lost Dutchman mine. Other claims were made in that vicinity, and soon the mammoth mine and other smaller operations around it. Well, if Hall had indeed found the lost Dutchman mine, uh, the thunder god of the superstitions was going to take it away from him. One day, after several years of successful mining, thunderclouds began to build up, and lightning flashed over the mountains, as it would from time to time. And Hall wasn't alarmed at first, but when the rains came like a river of water pouring off the mountains, joining in ever-increasing force, the uh, flash floods. Uh, didn't diminish, but they got worse. As water poured off the superstitions, an often flood of torrential waters crashed over the mine site, smashing machinery, and tossing equipment. Thousands of tons of sand and debris and earth completely filled the shafts and buried the mine completely. Well, was quite old by this time, had made millions already on the mine, decided not to try to reopen it. Eventually, his daughter sold the rights to a former mayor of Phoenix named George Young, who sank a test shaft at the Sight and found a powerful underground river now flowed through the mine. He attempted to pump the water out, but couldn't do it. Mammoth mine never reopened. Today it's the popular ghost town of Goldfield. Well, not everybody, of course, was satisfied the mammoth mine fit Jacob Walsh's description to Julia Walker. These people wondered if there wasn't another mine still undiscovered. They continue to look into the mountains for the lost mine, and some are doing it to this day. Well, what was the secret of the mysterious superstition treasure? Some say the Goldfield Hill mine at the western foot of the superstition is the ancient mine that was so long sought and found by many. And of course, millions of dollars of gold ore were taken from that mine. Others believe the still-unfound mine is high on the plateau of the mountains above the towering cliffs that you can see from Goldfield Hill. Weaver's Needle is thought to be the key to uncovering the now-buried diggings. Maybe some old miner blown up the mouth of the mine with dynamite. Well, the story that lost my mine continues to be repeated across the country, even in Europe, but the whole story actually creates more questions than it answers. Was there an ancient mine with tunnels going deep into the superstitions? Was it more of an outcropping of gold, like around Goldfield? And why did Jacob Walsh never file a claim? Maybe it was because he found something so astonishing he needed to keep it a secret. been a lot of theories offered.
1: Well, i that not know it at the end of today's
0: show, and for the end of the week, we'll talk more about new tales of mystery next week. But until then, this is Ken Hutton for the Ken Hutton Show, saying have a truly great weekend. 18 plus.